Many of us have searched for a magic bullet that'll bring peace and calm into our life, especially after the turmoil of the coronavirus pandemic. When we're feeling adrift, distracted or burned out, the need to reclaim that anger that keeps us grounded and focused becomes a priority. Hey, it's Dustin Burleson. Welcome to another episode of The Burleson Box. Today on the program, I'm talking with productivity expert Chris Bailey, author of the new book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Chris shows us the light at the end of the tunnel and gives us the tools to cultivate calm in our daily lives. Chris's two previous books on productivity, The Productivity Project and Hyperfocus, have been published in 26 languages. Chris has been a guest on our program in the past, and he regularly speaks to audiences around the world about these issues. He also hosts a popular podcast called Time and Attention. Backed by scientific research and studies, How to Calm Your Mind is the most personal book that Bailey has written to date. He chronicles the panic attack he had on stage in front of an audience of over 200 and shares what he did in the moment, how he conquered burnout, his road to recovery, and how he restored calm and tranquility into his life. Today on the program, Chris and I talk about how the analog and digital worlds affect calm and anxiety in vastly different ways, how our desire for the neurochemical dopamine eventually leads us to feel anxious and savor everyday experiences less. Chris shares how the pursuit of productivity and accomplishment is actually more addictive than we think. And we discuss how there are countless sources of hidden stress buried within our days. I'm so excited to share with you Chris's latest book, How to Calm Your Mind, on today's episode of The Burleson Box. to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. All right, I'm so excited to welcome Chris Bailey to the program. Chris, thanks for being here. Dustin, how are you? I'm doing well. I heard you we were talking uh, before. We turned the recording on. You've got a new cat named, oh. after, named after an economist. Tell us, yeah. tell, tell us how that came to be. <laughs> Eleanor is her name. And uh, being a cute, fluffy, cuddly furball is her game. Uh, yeah, my wife is an economist. Uh, thank you for your service right now, Arden. We need all the economists we can get, I think, at this point. Uh, and... Eleanor Osafen, I I forget her last name. She's the first female Nobel laureate in economics. And so that's 
who Eleanor is named after. And so it's uh, it's uh, in the, it just snowed this morning. We have a cat now. The fireplace is roaring. It's uh, it's a lovely time. <laughs> Chat about calm, isn't it? Life is life is good. And remind me, you're you're in Canada. Which part of Canada are you in? Ottawa. Ottawa. Yeah. Beautiful. Have you been? I, no, we have we have members up there, and so oh, cool. you're in good company. And uh, I was in British Columbia, different part of the country, yeah. uh, a few weeks ago. I loved it up there. It's just a wonderful trip. Good people in Canada. You should move. You should move up here. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Things get any worse down here. I might be well, moving. Yeah, up you might have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will adopt you if that's a thing. Awesome. Good. Right. You can help me get a visa up there. Or yeah. something. So. I will sponsor you. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, we're it's honored to have you. Uh, yeah, I, lis- I listened to Chris Rock. He was in town in Vancouver when I was up there and he was kind of railing on the U S we have our issues, right? There are a couple issues going on yeah. down here with good Just old democracy. Few. Just a few, but yeah. uh, still, still like yeah. it. Still, still a good place, but yeah. uh, love Canada. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. We, we spoke years ago about hyperfocus. We love that book. Our members yeah. love that book and you've got a new book. So it's called how to calm your mind mm-hmm. and why the new book, what, what pushed you in that direction? Tell us a little bit about why you wrote it. Yeah, for sure. This is a book, you know, the other two books, The Productivity Project, Hyperfocus, I very much intended to write. There are books on productivity, and this one ended up being one about productivity as well. But I found myself in a period of burnout, uh, as well as a deep period of anxiety. And I I kind of looked at my situation and the self-care strategies I was investing in at the time, and thinking, what, why? You know, I'm, I'm meditating every day. I'm going to the spa with my wife. I'm uh, taking long baths on, on the road because I'm on the road a lot of the time for, for work stuff. And realizing that if I'm experiencing these phenomenon of burnout and anxiety um, amidst, you know, a pretty meaningful work and personal life, uh, other people must be as well. And I, I started to look around and, and ask around and realized just how many folks were anxious and burnt out or on their way to those phenomenon, because we can be uh, partly either, as I found out in the journey, um, and realizing just the costs of you know these uh, scenarios of being burnt out and anxious, you know, not just in terms of becoming less present, less engaged, less motivated, but also in becoming a bit less productive too. Uh, actually, I should say significantly less productive. Uh, you know, if you're uh, burnt out, you know, being unproductive is a core attribute of burnout, along with exhaustion, as well as cynicism, this negativity that comes along with this this phenomenon. And for anxiety, anxiety hinders, hinders cognitive performance. Uh, you know, a good example of this is let's, let's say you have to give a speech in front of, say, a thousand people. And I asked you, Dustin, uh, you mind proofing this thing that I just wrote? It's 15 minutes before this talk. You <laughs> probably won't be able to focus on it when you're in that kind of threatening mindset. Uh, we all experience this all day long, but in less of a severe fashion than that. Uh, And so anxiety hinders performance. Burnout, of course, hinders performance. Um, And above all that, uh, an anxious mind, a a burnt out mind is not a positive, productive place, meaningful place uh, to come at life and work from. And so uh, feeling these phenomenon in my own life, it motivated me to dig 
deep into the research. I, whenever I seem to uh, hit an obstacle in my work life, in my personal life, I, I hit the books. I hit the academic journal articles on these topics. I chat with the greats, the gurus, and run experiments on myself to try to get to the bottom of why it's happening and what I can pragmatically do about it instead of just wishful thinking the situation away. Uh, and so the book is a culmination of all of that. It's what I learned. It's what didn't work. It's what did work um, for overcoming burnout and anxiety and finding calm. I love that. I want to highlight for the listeners uh, some data we've been promoting and, and kind of sharing on burnout. But first, mm-hmm. I, we found you through, I believe, David Allen, which is a productivity expert who recommended your book, to our members. Mm. And um, so we love that this is, this isn't just like, Hey, here's the problem. You come at the angle of here's some solutions for it, but uh, I have a great kind of follow-up question, but I want to highlight for listeners who think, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Burnout. I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm a high performing professional. That would never happen to me. You know, burnouts for like uh, air traffic controllers or, you know, you always think of like retail, uh, clerks like on black friday here in america like the, the doors yeah. are being burst down by a throng of customers but this is from the journal of patient safety and this just blew me away 40 this is uh, i think 2021 december so this is like definitely in the thick of the pandemic yeah 46 percent of dentists and a lot of dentists listen to this program 46 percent reported a concern that they had quote made an error in the last six months due to burnout mm. end quote i mean like that's alarming mm. to me that because a lot of dentists probably haven't taken the time to think about, okay, I'm not getting good sleep. I'm really not operating at peak performance. Uh, I might have some issues going on with stress and burnout. And yeah. I've now, it's not just impacting me, but it's impacting patient care. So I want to highlight that. Then I want to follow up and just kind of um, see like, where's your research? What, what have you found with, you know, high performers who think, ah, that's not for me. That's, that's someone else. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just, grit my teeth and bear it and I'll get through it. You know, what's, what's your advice to listeners in that, in that camp? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And I think we have to acknowledge that it's far more common of a phenomenon uh, than we let it on to be. Uh, and, you know, it, it's tough because with a, a term like burnout, there's a lot of fluff out there. There's a lot of BS advice out there on the topic of burnout. And this is something that I found very, very quickly in looking at the actual research on on the topic is there's a lot of people that will give advice on burn oh do more yoga <laughs> or yeah. or just meditate more meditate your burnout away uh, <laughs> but there are very very clear things that cause it and the main cause of burnout in fact there's only one is chronic stress and so you know we have two types of stress in our life acute stress which is once off and chronic stress which we face repeatedly and as defined by the world health organization and christina maslack whom uh, i consider to be the world's foremost expert on burnout research and uh, she is the one that i reference most heavily in the book uh, burnout is seen as the ultimate manifestation of chronic stress especially in a workplace type of environment. And of course, these days, our work and our home, they're becoming integrated with each other, and they're becoming one kind of uh, faded picture that, that fades into, into one another. But there are three core attributes that I mentioned that uh, serve as kind of stepping stones to a full burnout situation. We do need all three. Uh, exhaustion is one. We think of exhaustion as burnout, but 
it is just one of three attributes. Uh, feeling unproductive, so as if we're not making a contribution or a difference is number two. And cynicism is number three, this negativity that seems to, to permeate everything that we do. We need all three to be fully burnt out. And what, what we see in workplaces where burnout is a common phenomenon, people hide it. Because it's a sign of weakness. You know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So everybody's, and the ironic thing is this culture of masking burnout is really that of masking unproductivity. It's being less productive than we are because we don't have the full mental capacity or stamina to deal with the situation that we're in. Uh, but the, the also fascinating thing about the research is uh, I, I always try to look at the full picture of research and try to find the little square of it that is the pragmatic approach to a topic. And luckily, you know, there is a pragmatic approach to burnout, to overcoming this phenomenon, because there are six triggers, six kind of areas in our work life that this chronic stress tends to metastasize inside of. Uh, workload, is the first of the six. Uh, so if our workload is too damn high, we're far more likely to burn out, right? In, in fact, in uh, clinical situations, uh, reducing workload is the most common intervention for reducing, uh, for reducing burnout. The second is lack of control. And so you see this come up a lot in the pandemic. You know, we have to wear masks. We have to wear PPE. We have to, you know, we're, a situation is imposed on us by the external circumstances of the world. Uh, the less control we have over how we do our work, the more likely we are to burn out. The third is insufficient reward. And so we think of reward as that cold, hard cash. Uh, but it, it really is, you know, it's money salary, bonuses, stock options, but it's also social reward, you know, getting recognized for the work that we do and intrinsic reward. So it's finding the work that we do meaningful. Uh, and the, the remaining three are community. So whether we feel a sense of connection with the people that we're working alongside, uh, fairness. And so whether we're treated fairly, whether rewards are delivered equally uh, amongst the people that we work with. And the final one, is values. And so whether our work is, whether we can manifest what we deeply value through our work, which is the process through which meaning is made. Uh, and so workload, lack of control, insufficient reward, community, fairness, and values. And what strikes me with, with that situation that you gave in terms of the, the dentistry occupation is, you know, there would be less of a sense of community. I, I visited the dentist uh, once during COVID. I probably should have done it twice, given how long COVID has, has been going on. But that's that's the point for another day. Uh, <laughs> there'd be less of a sense of community because it's harder to connect with one another when we have to bundle up in PPE. Yep. Uh, there would be less of a sense of uh, control because of what, what I mentioned, you know, the situation of COVID being imposed on us. Uh, there would probably be a bit less reward in terms of the, the intrinsic reward, finding the, the work meaningful, because people are more stressed, not less when they have to go to the the uh, dentist during, you know, this, this period that has lasted a few years now. And so you can kind of work down the list. And, you know, chronic stress, of course, comes from all these six areas, but also others. And so it's no wonder that burnout in the form of uh, exhaustion, cynicism, being unproductive is 
through the roof. Uh, and it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's this situation that we're all in, but I think the key is to recognize that it's not really our fault most of the time. It's the fault of the situation that we're in, and we do need to mold that situation that we're in to be more conducive to engagement because engagement is the opposite of burnout, the research also says, but we do need to recognize that this is a phenomenon that is common, and it's far more common than we think. If we're burnt out, chances are other people are uh, where we work as well. Yeah, it's so important. Uh, another for the research-driven uh, listeners in the audience is, again, I think middle of COVID, maybe right around that early 2021, there was a study in, in one of the occupational health journals, and it was specifically over a couple hundred dentists, and they were looking at mm. sleep patterns and stress levels, and, and you nailed it. It was, I think it was almost 50% of the participants reported high levels of stress wow. and a full third were not getting adequate. They felt we're getting inadequate sleep. So yeah. uh, I love those six um, factors. And I think it's important to go back and maybe re uh, highlight that, go back, yeah. go back a minute or two and, and jot those down. We'll, we'll include those in the show notes. Those are absolutely fantastic. Um, so you're obviously an expert in this area, but I, I loved in the book that you were very vulnerable and transparent and shared that you actually experienced a panic attack on stage of all things while talking about productivity. Can you, talk about that experience? Yeah, that was not an enjoyable experience, <laughs> to, to, to put it lightly. Um, I, I was on stage and I, you know, immediately when I got up there, I, I felt, you know, off, you know, and, th and then the I started getting midway through the talk and I felt as though, you know, there were a bunch of marbles in my mouth, like I couldn't really say what I wanted to say well. Uh, and at the same time that that was happening, beads of stress started to form on the back of my neck. And I, there was a podium up there. That I, I don't, I'm not one of these folks that stands be, be behind a podium because I, I don't know. It's just kind of weird. But I found that I had to almost grip the podium to prevent myself from, from falling over. Wow. And I was having an anxiety attack on stage, you know, seeing this... Um, situation of giving a talk in front of a group of people as uh, a fight, flight, or freeze kind of scenario. And luckily, I finished the talk to kind of a lukewarm reception uh, because I'd rehearsed so many times. Uh, you know, so I could just do it on autopilot mode. Uh, but, you know, after this happened, I, I got back to my hotel room and I, I remember laying down, you know, it's one of these hotel rooms with the two beds in it, even though you're just staying there by yourself. <laughs> and uh, I remember laying down on one of these beds and just kind of breathing in and out and thinking something is off here, you know, and it was obvious that something was off. Um, but at, at the same time, I, I, I figured I was in a situation that I needed to get out of, but I wasn't quite sure how. I knew I was anxious. Uh, I knew in that moment on stage I had been overcome with anxiety. Luckily, I'd made it through that, that session. Uh, but I realized that something needed to change, but I couldn't quite pinpoint exactly how. Uh, because, you know, I, I mentioned off the top, I had been doing a lot of self-care up to that point. I actually thought I was really good at self-care, uh, you know, going on, you know, getting massages after, you know, work trips, uh, going to the spa with my wife, my meditation cushion is basically within reach here. But yet I still 
had that situation where the anxiety that was in my life metastasized into this full-blown anxiety attack on stage. And seeing this situation in my own life, it, it made me step back to deconstruct the situation that I was in. And I, I found a, a ton of stuff related to uh, to calm and anxiety. First of all, you know, the attention went to calm because I, I realized in that moment, I need to do whatever I possibly can to introduce calm in my own life. I was uncomfortable, I was anxious, and I wasn't happy. Uh, but very quickly, you know, looking at the research on calm, I realized that anxiety sucks, right? And we've all gone through anxious periods. Um, the anxiety that that I have is not clinical. It's this subclinical form of modern anxiety that seems to permeate its way through many of our lives as well as our culture. And, uh, you know, deconstructing this anxiety that I was experiencing, I, I found to be a fascinating fascinating phenomenon. Um, and it, it led me down a lot of research rabbit holes, but one of which is that the opposite of anxiety is not having no anxiety. The opposite of anxiety is being calm. You know, if anxiety is a spectrum, it doesn't go from zero anxiety to, ah, super anxious, having a panic attack. It goes from that state of high anxiety all the way down past the point of no anxiety to high calmness. And discovering this depth of calm, calm very much is a skill that we can get better at, but it affords us all of these benefits in our life. Um, and the more I invested in finding it, in overcoming, you know, the chronic stress, the dopamine that my life was centered around, which is a primary source of modern anxiety that leads us away from a deep presence with what we're doing, uh, even having an accomplishment mindset where I cared about how much I accomplished with my time above all else because uh, of just craving more all the time, more of everything that I had, that compromised calm as well. But the closer I got to this calm side of the spectrum, I realized that you know this is the 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 wellspring, uh, the the fountain that lives at the heart of what makes life enjoyable and good. You know, out of it springs joy and meaning and productivity because we can approach our life with a level of measured deliberateness instead of directionless, uh, anxiety-driven hustle. Uh, we can be with whatever and whomever we're with and develop a capacity for presence, uh, which is what productivity is all about. Right? I, I always bring it back to productivity because that's happen, th that happens to be what I study. You know, I mentioned that this book was unintentional, and <laughs> that's because I usually write about productivity, but I found that the benefits of productivity were profound in this situation as well. And so you know, the panic attacks sucked. Uh, and there's no way around it. It's, it's, it's embarrassing to look back on, and it makes me uncomfortable to look back on. I think I, think I, you know, I blamed it on the case of uh, having a, the flu back then when I experienced this ill-timed anxiety attack, with, which thankfully people bought because I'd done the rehearsing. But luckily, that was the impetus for this project and led me to all, all this research that is fascinating and helpful that 
is not really anywhere else that that I find just really extraordinarily beneficial. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. Hopefully that was interesting. (laughs) That was a great (laughs) answer. It can be be as long-winded as you want when the answer is that good, right? (laughs) Oh, good stuff, good stuff. It's a a beautiful book, and I love that you were, you know, vulnerable enough to share that experience uh, because, as you said, it it put you on the path to do this research. And what what really struck me is how counterintuitive that is, right? Because we have this sense, particularly in high achievers, business owners, professional practice owners, that if you want to be more productive, do more, get up earlier, stay later, you know, be the first one in the office, be the last one to leave. And so I love that it is true. And I found that in my own life that actually to be more productive, you want to be more calm. And so there's some great practical advice in the book. And uh, I love that it's evidence-based. Uh, you know, do we want to kind of dig into some of those? Maybe, yeah. maybe what helped you or what you found through the research that um, that maybe helped you kind of recognize burnout? Or I love some of the just, I mean, really practical tips. I want to, yeah. I definitely want to talk today about uh, the dopamine fast. You know, what yeah. is that? And I just kind of want to maybe dig into some of those. Yeah. So I love how in that question, you started off with the productivity benefits of Calm. Uh, in the book, I calculate out how uh, about eight hours of work can take take us around 10 hours. And so a- as we become more anxious, our work actually takes longer, which makes us far less productive because of how anxiety sh- uh, shrinks our working memory capacity. Uh, and the best research that I've found sh- shows that anxiety shrinks our working memory by around 20%. And so our working memory be the, being the uh, immediate term, short-term scratch pad that we use to connect information, that we use to process language, that we use to add numbers, that we use to do anything short and immediate term and mentally. Uh, And so it shrinks our cognitive capacity in general. It makes us more distractible. We look out for more threats in our environment. We remember that one negative conversation or email more than, you know, the the other hundred conversations that we have throughout the day or the other emails that we send throughout the day too. Uh, we have more negative self-talk. We become less engaged and less present, right? Presence is, again, what productivity is all about. It's just like the big speech or the airplane turbulence. When, when we're in a threatening situation, we become less productive. And one culprit for this anxiety, uh, you know, I like how you uh, mentioned the dopamine fast. We, we have this mechanism called the novelty bias embedded within our brain, by which for every new and novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, the, the neurochemical that is correlated with the anticipation of pleasure. And that, that was one misconception that I had going into this project. I thought of dopamine as a, a pleasure chemical, right? I thought dopamine made us happy and pleasurable, even though it was a chemical of stimulation. But what I found looking at the research is that dopamine, first of all, you know, is very misunderstood, but it's also poorly understood. We don't have a full picture of what dopamine is, of how it works on the impact that it has over our life. Uh, But with that said, and with that rather large caveat, uh, the best research that I found has shown that dopamine is more of a chemical of anticipation 
than it is a chemical of pleasure. And so when we tend to anything novel, we feel as though pleasure is on the way. And that propels us forward, right? And so we're on our phone, and then we encounter something novel on Instagram, and then we feel this sense of anticipation that pulls us into a different app like email. And then we anticipate even more, and then we go check the news and get another dopamine hit moving around in this dopamine-fueled feedback loop. And what this means is that the dopamine is coursing through our brain. It's at a rather high level because we are repeatedly surging the levels through these, uh, essentially, you know, the phone can be considered a light version of a drug because of the chemical effect that it has on our mind. And because of these surges, the more dopamine we uh, receive, the no more dopamine we want. Uh, stimulation begets stimulation. Uh, dopamine begets dopamine. And so we find this in the usage patterns on our phone of technology. Um, so a dopamine fast is when we go without these behaviors for a period of time that allows our mind to reset. And so what we do is for a period, I, I like doing these for about a month. And so every time I do one, you know, I feel calmer after, I feel uh, more present, I feel more with whatever and whatever it is I'm doing. Um, and so for a month, you go without this stimulation layer in your life. Uh, and so most of the, the stuff we do on our phone, on the internet, uh, sometimes in the analog world too, this super stimuli that is designed to release more dopamine, um, such as takeout food and alcohol and caffeine, a lot of people choose to eliminate. You know, I won't come between you and your glass of wine or cup of coffee if that's something <laughs> that you love. But those really th those uh, lead to dopamine surges in the brain as well. And so for a month, you essentially reset your tolerance for stimulation. And the effect that this has over our lives can be profound. You know, the, the dopamine fast, uh, you know, first of all, we can't fast from dopamine. Uh, dopamine plays an important role in a lot of the logical work that we do. If you're solving big problems, if you're giving a big, big presentation, if you're being uh, present with other people, those all lead to the release of dopamine as well. But what we can fast from are these empty sources of dopamine, the ones that lead us more to anticipation than they lead us to an enjoyment, you know, that lead us more to regret than they lead us to uh, meaning. And, and so when we do that for a month or so, we reset our tolerance for stimulation, we reset our tolerance for dopamine, and we regain this presence because most of the me most meaningful parts of our life exist at a lower stimulation level. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you think to the tasks that you engage with, that you regret spending time on, they're rarely things that are calming and lead you to presence. They're rarely things like people and, you know, hanging around a campfire at night or listening to music or playing uh, some board games with your family. They're things that create that feeling of emptiness simply because it's anticipation that drives us forward. It's the social media checks. It's the news checks. It's the email checks when we're not going to deal with what comes in. All that serve to stimulate our mind because our mind finds it very difficult to distinguish between busyness and what leads us to a genuine 
progress. And, and so it, it's this fascinating phenomenon. Dopamine fasting sounds gimmicky, <laughs> and I, I will fully buy into that idea. But it's shocking just how much calmer it can make you. And because you develop this capacity for presence, uh, it can lead you to productivity as well. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now, back to the program. It was kind of a surprising finding in the book. I think there are a lot of high achievers listening to this. Yeah. And early in my career, I mean, in the book, you draw the link that accomplishment can be addictive. And that was absolutely present in my life. We we, we grew the business significantly. So we like, well, let's go do it again. Let's expand into a new market. Let's add new services. Let's hire more doctors. And that feedback loop Uh, The the link I want to highlight for me was that it became very distracting. I could not focus on everything. There was a limited amount of attention I could give to all of those projects, but it didn't change the fact that it was really addictive. And so I just, I really appreciated that, um, that link that sometimes you need to make sure that what's, what's giving you that kind of feedback in a positive way is not something that's going to leave you empty or wake up one day and go like, okay, I built this thing. I can no longer manage because my attention is distracted. Yeah. And I'm so happy you highlighted that. You know, in the book, I call it the mindset of more where we we have this natural tendency to strive for more at all costs. And and the way I define the mindset of more is uh, a set of attitudes that drives us to strive for more at all costs, regardless of the context. And what this does is more, you know, more is often... uh, associated with dopamine. In fact, there's a even a book called The Molecule of More, which is all about dopamine. And when we're constantly pursuing more of what we have, we're never satisfied with what we have because we're propelled by this sense of anticipation and we never truly feel as though we've arrived. You know, we're always moving forward, but we never truly sit and, and, and enjoy the fruits of our accomplishments. And I, I found this in my own work, in my own career. You know, the more success I achieved, the more success I wanted to achieve. And it was this vicious uh, cycle. And the fascinating thing as well is the networks in our brain that are associated with acquiring more of whatever it is that we have are reverse correlated, they're anti-correlated with the brain networks that support us in being present 
with what we're doing. And again, presence is the key to productivity because if you can't focus on what you intend to accomplish, good luck being productive. You can crave more of whatever it is that you want, uh, but you probably won't get there. And again, it's this this blind pursuit of more, wanting more without an endpoint. You know, goals without endpoints are just fantasies, right? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And this is not to rail against, you know, I'm not saying we should all become a monk that lives in the the cave and abandons all of their material possessions, Um, even though maybe some of us would be happier (laughs) if we did so. Uh, What I'm advocating for is a deliberate pursuit of more. And giving more boundaries so it doesn't turn into this contextless pursuit of ambition and just never truly being happy with what we have. What's the point of acquiring more if you don't enjoy what you acquire? Or if you don't acquire more in the service of helping other people or in the service of service. Um, And and there's even been research, one one of the other fascinating topics that I had the chance to explore in writing How to Calm Your Mind is the field of savoring. And and so, so, you know, we can experience something positive and not derive any satisfaction from it. And that's the fascinating thing. It's just because our life looks good doesn't mean that it feels good because we need to actually enjoy the positive things that comprise our day. You know, think of the incredible meals you scarf down because you're uh, watching some show or distractedly doing something else. Uh, Think of the movie that is supposed to be renowned that you can't fully become immersed in because you're thinking about work. Uh, Think about any positive thing, you know, a a meaningful conversation with a loved one where your mind is still in the office. And, And the wealthier somebody is, the less likely they are to savor their lives. Hmm. And that's fascinating because of that idea that these acquisition networks are reverse correlated with these networks for present enjoyment. Uh, We're less likely to uh, have a sense of anticipation when, uh, when we're wealthier. We're less likely to reminisce about the past when we're wealthier. Uh, And so even getting somebody in a laboratory study into this acquisition mentality uh, has been shown to lead them to enjoy uh, chocolate less (laughs) compared to people who aren't in an acquisition mentality. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to acquire more, in my opinion, uh, especially when the pursuit of more is deliberate and structured on top of our values. Again, values, as I write in the book, you know, when we manifest our values through action, that is the process through which meaning is made. That is how we we manifest. Meaning isn't something we find. It's something we act upon on a daily basis when our values are connected through the things that we do, whether at work or whether at home. Uh, But this pursuit of more can bleed out over and above work, where it turns into this blind pursuit of more, regardless of the area of our life that we're operating inside of. And we need to be really, really careful there, I found. And this was one of those areas where the pursuit of uh, productivity harmed my my own pursuit of calm, uh, and I think you know it, it can do that for anyone, and it's something we have to be careful of. 
We had so powerful. I had a, a presentation last week with a large group of doctors and healthcare providers uh, for an organization that has over a hundred clinics. And we did a core values exercise. So I had them mm. sit down with a piece of paper and pen, which I want to get to because it was an analog activity, which I like in yeah. the book that you highlight a lot of really cool analog strategies. Yeah, and It was so powerful. And I'm curious your take on core values or values, like as we mentioned, value-based objectives. Uh, it's yeah. fine to want more, but you know, why are you pursuing it? What's, what's the reason behind it? Uh, it was so easy for the members in the audience to get like the first two or three values. And then when they had to, I was just limited to five, just pick your top five. Yeah. And it was so hard for them to, to define those. Have you seen, <laughs> do you feel like values change? I'm curious your thought. Do you feel like they change at different periods of life when you have a young family versus when kids are grown and in college? What's your take on value-based like objectives, either personally or as, as it relates to a business? Yeah, the best theory of values, uh, I, I went on kind of a quest in, in, in writing this book on values, and the best theory of values that I found was formulated by Shalom Schwartz, it was his name, or is his name, uh, I, I don't recall <laughs> if, he's, if, if I should be saying this posthumously, uh, but what, what he found is that depending on our orientation, uh, we're either kind of manifesting our actions in service of ourselves or other people uh, and in the service of uh, keeping things as they are, so conservatism, or as advancing things forward. And what he found is he kind of has a circle of, of human values that he breaks down into 10 of them. Uh, and I have them in front of me here, lest you think I'm, I'm reciting them off, <laughs> off the top of my head. But the 10 values um, are self-direction. So that's freedom, creativity, independence. It's choosing our own goals. It's curiosity. If you're an entrepreneur, you probably value self-direction. That might be what motivated you to become self-directed. Uh, stimulation is another value. Uh, so we talked about the negative effects of stimulation, but stimulation, you know, in, in the form of an exciting life, of a varied life, of taking on uh, exciting challenges, risky challenges, being daring uh, can be quite a powerful value too. Uh, hedonism in, ter in terms of pleasure and enjoying life, being self-indulgent even is a value, is considered a top uh, level value of the 10. Uh, so self-direction, stimulation, hedonism, achievement is another one. Uh, being ambitious, capable, influential, successful, power is another value as yeah. well. So whether social power, whether the power comes from wealth or authority, uh, security is another one. And so this can be everything from national security to family security and uh, even the cleanliness of your house that comes from, from security. Uh, conformity. You know, again, we're going to the conservative values now, uh, conformative, conformity in the term of in terms of politeness, self-discipline. Uh, tradition is another one. So being modest, humble, devout, uh, benevolence, you know, being loyal, respectful, honest, and universalism, uh, which I find to be a beautiful value, uh, you know, in terms of equality, uh, nature, unity with nature is part of that, um, seeing justice in the world, being broad-minded, protecting the environment. So these are the 10 basic values from which all other values stem. And the fascinating thing is, you know, you can kind of work through this list and rank them out of 10, how, how you're doing um, in, in each of them to determine the sub-values that are really important to you underneath each of these essentially 
categories of values. Um, but the fascinating thing, in my opinion, there is, there is no right or wrong value. Uh, wh- wh- these values are really just orientations towards uh, different preferences in life that connect with our deeper structure of how we wish things to be. Uh, you know, certain values oppose one another. So I think that that might be a, re- a reason we're seeing a lot of the polarization right now when um, when the ways in which we're manifesting our values are driven by engagement, like uh, on Twitter, on social media, you know, that tends to lead to this polarizing effect because of the, the most novel voices across each of these 10 values breaking through and being diametrically opposed to what we believe in. And, uh, you know, I don't think that necessarily helps. But again, like you were saying, we can find that engagement in connecting what we do on a daily basis with these deeper values. And I think that's where the, the meaning is in so much of what we do. Again, I feel this, I, I think this is the third time I'm saying this, but uh, you know, manifesting our values through actions is the process through which meaning is made. And keeping that in mind is such a powerful motivator because, again, going back to the burnout idea, one of the six areas that burnout can uh, metastasize in our work is through an incongruence with what we value. And sometimes there is a congruence. There's more of a congruence than we think. Uh, It's just that we don't realize it's there. That's a great point. And I love, I'll never forget my uh, my grandmother growing up with my mother was ridiculously strict about healthy diet, everything being Mm. homemade, no sugar. And the older she got, she would always have dessert. And we're like, well, maybe you know, the bunch of dentists in the family, like, well, maybe taste buds change when we get older, you know, uh, maybe, yeah, it's always insulting to have a bunch of sugar around a dentist, except we yeah. all have sweet, <laughs> we all have massive sweet teeth. Um, one, one person was like, well, maybe, you know, like she just tastes saltier and sweeter thing like that. Just, you need more. And she's like, no, at, at my age, you never pass dessert up. You know, you should always yeah. say yes. She's like, so grandma's just being a little bit more hedonistic in her old days. Like, yeah. this might be my last dessert. I'm changing my values. <laughs> well, it's I so funny it. that, you know, speaking of the science of, of savoring, yeah. uh, a, a great way to savor things more is through scarcity. Uh, and yes. so if, if we, you know, and I don't know why we need research to bear this out, but there is research on this where if we have, uh, two pieces of chocolate versus one piece of chocolate. We will savor that one piece of chocolate far, far more than we do the two pieces of chocolate. And our level of savoring differs depending on how much of something we have. And so this might be yet another reason why being wealthier and better off is antithetical to actually enjoying our lives is because when we have less of something, we enjoy it far, far more. Wow. It's a great, great point. Um, I, I want to talk about why we, before we over wear our welcome. Your time is very, very valuable and I don't want to, don't want to, um, you know, take it for granted, but I do want to talk about some of these really neat analog examples you give. You, you say in the book, nearly all the habits that lead to calm, mm-hmm exist in one place, the analog world. Can we talk about some of those examples? I love, I love this uh, content in the book. Yeah. It's a fascinating idea. And as, as more time goes on, we spend more and more time 
in the digital world. Uh, the, the best statistic and the most recent statistic that I found in, in writing this book is that we spend over 13 hours a day in the digital world looking at screens. And, you know, I'm wow. looking at one wow. right now. You're looking at one right yeah, now. Exactly. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just a part of the tapestry of our day. Uh, but we can kind of build out a Venn diagram of sorts where we have the analog circle and we have the digital circle. And so if we kind of map them and connect them in the middle so there's a bit of overlap, we have the analog-only activities, right? Uh, brushing our teeth, <laughs> time in nature is a really meaningful one. We have the digital-only activities, so the ones that kind of fall in that part of the circle, like uh, social media, email, uh, tasks that often uh, are, are what scientists call super stimuli, which are highly processed and exaggerated versions of things that we're biologically wired to enjoy, often because of dopamine. You know, they're, they're the kind of activities that lead to this satisfactional emptiness. But in the middle are the ones we can do in both worlds, right? It's the writing, it's the brainstorming. It's the uh, keeping a to-do list the analog way. It's the time with people that we can do either digitally over Zoom or in person so we can reach out and touch somebody. Uh, it's, it's the books that we read, whether we read them on a, on a, an, a digital screen on our iPad or whether we get a nice hardback book that we crack open and scribble in the margins. Um, it's the games that we play, you know, the board game nights that we have with our family where everybody leaves um, uh, their phone in a different room. It's the news that we consume. Um, you know, the newspaper, I subscribe to the physical newspaper. It's my favorite subscription service because somebody essentially assembles a daily briefing of everything going on in my city, in my province, in my country, around the world for me and drops it off on my doorstep. It's far less full of dopamine, the digital news that refreshes every two to five minutes and is centered around novelty and dopamine and raises us to a higher stimulation of height and moves us away from a deep presence with what we're doing. Uh, plus, you can compartmentalize the news checking time so that it doesn't consume uh, the gaps of your day. But these activities we can do in both worlds. The, the fascinating thing is that the analog and the digital worlds influence our state of mind in vastly different ways. Um, you know, the, if the digital world is centered around novelty, uh, the analog world is centered not around dopamine, but around connection, around mastery, around things that make us feel a rush, a sense of euphoria, you know, endorphins, serotonin, uh, oxytocin for the connection. And so the more things we do the analog way, um, the more meaning we have in our day and the deeper that we're able to uh, get into something that we're doing. You know, it, in my opinion, the digital world is full of wonders, right? It connects the, the entire world and it would be a shame if I were to bash it on this podcast. It is full of what you, you can just Google any anything that you want and find it. You know, I, I don't need to expel the wonders of the digital world, but we have forgotten about the analog world. If you look only to how we spend our time each and every day, we spend just a, a, a few measly hours in the analog world, even though that's where connection is, even though that is where presences, satisfaction is. And so the more of these tasks we do the analog way, you know, if the digital world 
makes our life more efficient. The analog world makes our life more meaningful, uh, if only because of the uh, neurochemicals that it leads to the release of in our brain. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, the, the way I'll, I'll say it is we deserve time in the analog world. We deserve a lot more time in the analog world than we are giving ourselves because of how much happier it makes us uh, and how much calmer it makes us too and how much more deliberate it makes us. I, I'm a big fan. That's great. I, I love one of the strategies in the book and the more I read about it, the more convinced I am that uh, you say move more yeah. So get your body moving and to move through nature. Yes. I'm just so convinced in, in my own personal life, anecdotally, being in nature has really helped me kind of zoom out when things seem stressful. You come back and you're like, okay, that was not that big of a deal. We're going to find a solution to that. It's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it tomorrow. Uh, you know, issues that come up in the business or in my personal life. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about uh, specifically how much, how much should we be moving our bodies and, and why is it so important to be out in nature when we're doing that? Yeah, we, we need a lot more, you know, you know, movement than we we're getting. You know, there, there's that rule that we should be getting ten thousand steps each and every day. But the the origins of that, I think, uh, you know, in one study I encountered, were traced back to some uh, Japanese walking club. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we we need far more uh, activity than we get. Um, uh, you know, thirty minutes of activity each and every day, in my opinion, at least. Uh, that is how we're wired, and I, I love how you mentioned nature. There is something marvelous about nature that we have forgotten about. That just shrinks us. We we feel a sense of grandeur when we're in nature because we evolved in nature. We didn't evolve through, uh, you know, walking through concrete jungles that are dotted with. Uh, trees and lined with shrubs and bushes. We we evolved in a world of green and brown and blue. Uh, and, and so the more time we spend in that world, the calmer our mind becomes automatically. And when you layer on top of that other habits of uh, of calm that exist in the analog world, like that movement, uh, we layer on other activities as well that lead us to a greater sense of balance and presence with whatever it is that we're doing. Nate, we, we've lost touch with nature. And it's a shame, you know, if you think to, I don't even need to talk about the scientific benefits of nature, I think, because we all have so much data at our own uh, disposal because of our history. You know, if you think back to when you were last in nature, assuming you weren't, <laughs> you know, in, in a super stress, chased by a, a, a leopard or something, when you think back to when you were last in nature and how you felt in that situation, chances are you felt a lot less on the anxious side of this calm spectrum and a lot more to high, towards the high calmness side. Maybe afterwards you felt recharged and in this way that time in nature replenished your supply of uh, mental energy, your capacity, your fuel to get things accomplished. Maybe you even made back the time that you spent in there because of these benefits, because of the, that, uh, that fruit uh, of, of that time. We need more time in nature and we, and we deserve it too. I love that. There's one more strategy I want to mention, and then we'll end with a powerful takeaway I took from the book. And the tip is 
practicing meditation uh, yeah. and calming your mind. Can you maybe share your best practices, what's helped you, what, what's working well? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are surprised just how little I talk about meditation in the book um, because, you know, there's so many other uh, kind of tectonic plates that we can shift around in our life. But meditation in terms of a habit that leads us to presence, uh, I think is in a league all of its own. And, and the reason for this is quite quite a simple one. You know, meditation being this practice of continuing to refocus on our breath um, and cultivating presence in that way. And you might say, okay, wh- why would that work? Why, why would focusing on our breath have such a profound effect on our state of mind, on our state of calm? But if you can focus on your breath, you can focus on pretty much anything, right? Because our breath is very boring. <laughs> it, it doesn't lead us to become that engaged with what we're doing. And because of that, our mind will wander constantly. It, you know, if you think to the kind of varying stimulation heights of the different activities in your life. Uh, so stimulation heights is, is an idea that I introduce in the book, where essentially all the activities that we engage with over the course of our day exist at a different height of stimulation based on how much dopamine they release uh, relative to other chemicals. And so activities like, you know, hard drug use, for example, might be at the very top. Underneath that might be social media uh, use. And then beneath that might be online shopping. Then beneath that might be a Zoom meeting. Then beneath that might be, you know, playing board games with your family. And at the very bottom, (laughs) at the very bottom, one of the least stimulating activities that you can do uh, is meditation. And it pulls you down this stimulation heights chart uh, because it's so destimulating, right? You only focus on your breath and your mind will wander constantly. But if you can focus on your breath, you can focus on anything. If you can become engaged with your breath, you can become engaged with pretty much anything. Uh, If you can enjoy your breath, you can enjoy pretty much everything. And if you can become present with your breath, you can become present and basically whatever it is that you're doing, because pretty much anything in your life will be more dopaminergic and more novel than meditation. And so that is the beauty and the wonder of meditation is when you look at it relative to the other activities that comprise our day, because it exists at such a low height of stimulation, it pulls us downward on this chart. And the activities that exist at the top, the social media use, the online news, the drug use at the very top, for example, alcohol use um, is, is one example. Um, we, over time, over the long arc of time, we generally wish to do fewer things at the top part of the height of stimulation chart. And we wish to do things that are at the bottom, right? The things that exist at the very bottom, they're the most meaningful elements of our life. They're the people that are in our life. They're the quiet moments we're sitting in front of a campfire and just watching the flames dance with a few people and then the wood crackle. Uh, they're the, the times that we're awed by the stars, by the ocean, by by the sky. You know, these are the moments that make life meaningful. Um, they're, you know, they're what life is all about, living at that lower height of stimulation. And so we get there 
through the analog world. We get there through time and nature. We get there through uh, things like a, a dopamine fast. We get there through recognizing the place that calm deserves to have in our life. And meditation, it can be such a, a wonderful shortcut to a, a calmer, more deliberate life. That's great. It kind of tees us up for my last question oh. and something oh. I just love from the book. And that is, you say we should choose a few quote currencies in, yeah. quote, in our lives what, that we should be striving for. What, what do you mean by that? And, and how can listeners take that and put it to good use? Yeah. I love that question because we, we because of the mindset of more, um, you know, the more we have, the more we wish to have. It's the psychology of, uh, of our mind where we strive for more uh, often regardless of the context. And this has produced humanity. <laughs> so I'm yeah. not going to rail against this too much <laughs> uh, because we wanted to survive through today. Uh, you know, we, we have this mindset of more and God bless it. But it does compromise our happiness in the modern world uh, because we want to optimize and we want to acquire more of pretty much any currency that we come into contact with. You know, we have some followers on Instagram, and then we want more followers on Instagram. We have some money in our bank account. We want more money in our bank account. We get 40 likes on a tweet. Wow, hopefully the next time we uh, <laughs> we break that record, because what a shame it would be if, if we didn't. Uh, and so, uh, and so we, we have this natural tendency, but there are so many currencies of our life that we you know, that we forget about in trying to strive for more of the currencies that produce a bit less meaning, right? How much connection do we have with other people, right? Hardly anything makes us less happy than, we're more happy than that. You know, why don't we strive for more connection with other people? How about we strive for more of the time that we spend manifesting those 10 things that we value most deeply? How, how can we maximize more of that? At work, now, how can we maximize how engaged we are? That's how I like to personally measure my days, especially after seeing the the result that engagement can have on whatever it is I'm doing. There are so many things that make life good and that make work meaningful that we can be striving for more of. And I think taking that step back and deliberately choosing uh, which things we strive for more of is a is a key part of structuring uh, our existence. I love it. Chris, thank you for being here. Thanks for writing the book. The book is How to Calm Your Mind, and we will include links in the show notes for all the references and to learn more about Chris. So, uh, Chris, thank you so much. It was such an honor. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, and as a member, you'll receive early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive transcripts, handouts, and PowerPoint templates to help guide your next team meeting. Just give us a call at 816-226-7988 and we can discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, and our annual leadership conference can work for you and your employees. Be sure to listen each month for new resources. And until next time, remember the words of Charlie Munger, who said, be a continuous learning machine. 
Charlie is a voracious reader along with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and many other hugely successful people. As the old saying goes, we are old too soon and wise too late. Go make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.